So if you have your copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to resume our study in 1 Timothy starting in verse 8. So to kind of give you a recap while you're turning there, uh, the book of 1 Timothy written by Paul to Timothy. It's the first letter that we have here. And it's instructing the church by instructing a pastor. So Timothy, here's how you should pastor the flock. And so we as a church are trying to glean insight from that. So we looked in chapter 1. Uh, Paul greets Timothy, and then he charges Timothy to protect the church's doctrine and the church's devotion. And we kind of see that unfolding throughout the book. We go into chapter 2. We see the first instruction is to pray for all kinds of people without distinction. Rulers, authorities, those in high positions. And then we looked at last week, well, why do we do that? Because we serve a God who desires to save all kinds of people without distinction. This doesn't mean everyone's going to be saved. Okay? This doesn't mean that God planned for everyone to be saved, but then some rebelled against that. That's not what that means. God desires for all without distinction to be saved. Therefore, we should pray for all without distinction so that we can be like our God. Okay? We imitate God in that. So now this week, Paul is making a shift, and he's going to start talking about different roles in the church. We're going to see some passages to men, to women. We're going to see passages about deacons, about overseers or pastors. It's the same thing. This isn't meant to be like everything that the church should do, but this is just helpful for us to be able to study. Okay? So we're going to go ahead and dive in. I'm going to read starting in verse 8, and we'll go down through verse uh, 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. As a pastor, I love coming to passages like this and then getting to address them to the lovely men and women of our congregation. I never stress about it. I never get afraid, you know, so I'm just excited that you're here to dive into this with me. But all joking aside, Stacy, I didn't ask if I could share this, but um, I'm going to share it anyway. Uh, she worked at a Walmart pharmacy at one point, and one of the, I think it was one of the pharmacists who was not a believer, she was agnostic maybe, or maybe an atheist, but she wasn't a believer, and one of the questions that she asked Stacy while she was there was, because Stacy had a couple of opportunities to talk to her, one of the things she had against Christianity was that it was so demeaning to women. And I think that's a common misconception in our culture. And I think, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that this was one of those passages that she pointed to. So I'm actually really excited to get to look at this with you because I don't believe the Bible is demeaning towards women. I think the Bible has a high view of women. Okay? And I'm excited to get to study this along with you. So starting in verse 8, though, I want to go in order. He says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. When he says in every place, um, go ahead and turn your page if you need to. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
verses 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. We'll come to this later in our study, but I want to highlight it now. He tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm ready to come to you, but if I delay, I'm writing this so you know how people should function in the church. That's how we need to frame our mindset here as we back up, back to chapter 2. That starts right here in verse 8. Everything from 8 all the way to verse 13 of chapter 3, he is giving Timothy instructions. It says every place, that every place he's talking about is where the people are gathered, the church of God. Okay, So, obviously, we should pray in every place. And not just men should pray in every place, but specifically in this context, here's what Paul is saying. In every place that the people of God are gathered, every church, men need to pray. Why? Okay, we're going to look back at the verse again. I desire then that in every place. So that then is kind of like therefore. He made an argument before, and this is the result. So why should every man pray? Number one, because what we just looked at, we're meeting as the household of God. Our Father's house is to be a house of prayer. We looked at that on Sunday a little bit. But number two, because our prayers are to be modeled after God's salvific purposes. We saw that last week. We pray for all people because God desires to save all people. Okay, so as a household of God, then, Paul says, my desire is that men would pray in such a way because that's what kind of God we serve, okay? So the two reasons that men should pray, because we're meeting as the household of God and it's a house of prayer, and because we are to model ourselves after God's purposes. We should be praying here more than any other place that people would be saved. This should be the hub of that ministry, praying for salvation. That's what we should be known for. But notice it says the men should pray. This doesn't mean that only men should pray. Rather, it's to say that when the church is gathered, the men ought to pray, and it ought to be done a certain way. Look at this. I desire that in every place the men should pray, comma, everything after this is describing pray, lifting holy hands, pray without anger, pray without quarreling, The emphasis in this verse, I don't think, is on men. I think it's on the how they pray. Okay? How they pray. And it says, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Prayer to a holy God. Prayer to a holy God. And anger and infighting are not compatible. Prayer to a holy God. Anger and quarreling, not compatible. When we live in unholiness, when our lives are filled with unholiness, we shouldn't expect for a holy God to be satisfied and to bless us in that. Psalm 24.4 says this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, 
he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So the implication here is that the one who has an impure heart and unclean hands should not expect to receive blessing. Now the good news is, is as Christians, even though we are unclean, we are made clean by Christ. So we get those blessings. But that doesn't excuse us from pursuing holiness. That's kind of an accusation that Southern Baptists get sometimes. We believe that, you know, once saved, always saved. Like, I I know the day I was saved, and he's going to hold me, he's going to keep me. Well, some people will interpret that and say, so you're telling me that I can just get saved and then just live however I want? And that's the impression we give sometimes, and that's not what we're teaching. We're made clean, but we still pursue holiness. It's just that now we are free to do that without condemnation. Okay? So we ought to pursue cleanliness and holiness. People who pray to a holy God ought to pursue holiness. So then what do we make of men here? Two things. Number one, men should be known for prayer in the church. In the church are men, like I'm I'm talking as a brother with you men. We need to be known for prayer in the church. We need to be known for prayer in the church. That is how we can faithfully lead a church effectively. If you're like me, you like to show off, like, yeah, I know how to fix this, and I know how to, we like to show those things off. But in this instance, it's better for us to humble ourselves in prayer and say, I can't faithfully lead this church well if I'm not on my knees constantly. Men should be known for that, that humility and that prayer. Number two, the praying men in the church should be known for their holiness. The praying men in the church should be known for their holiness. So I've got two real practical questions for all of us men right now. Number one, are we known as men of prayer? Are we known as men of prayer? Number two, are we known as men of holiness? Or do people know you as the one that gets a temper or the one that always has a complaint. I knew a brother once, and he's a brother in Christ, but we were driving in the church van. We were going to Lake Charles, and he said, yeah, I kind of get road rage, but you know what? That just is what it is. You're just going to have to deal with it and kind of laughed it off. I don't think we should laugh things off so quickly. If that's just who you are, let's ask God to make us someone different. I've read, I think it was Oswald Chambers, read a couple of days ago. If you haven't read um, uh, My Utmost for His Highest, it's a devotional, very famous. A couple of days ago, he said this in his devotion. He said something to the effect of one of the biggest obstacles or hindrances for us coming to the Lord is our personality. And I think that's true here also. He recommends praying to God and saying, God, change me. That's what we need to pray. We need to stop and drop to our knees and beg God to change me into a man who is not easily angered. But into a man that's instinct is to just pray. Just to pray. That's what we need, men. Okay? But wait, there's more. Men are like, brother, this is supposed to be about the women. What's going on here? Guys, this is big. But it continues... Verse 9, no, verse 9. Likewise, also, 
that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So he says, likewise also that women, we're going to see likewise come up again. So I want to address it now. What this basically means is slightly different situation, but same principles. We're going to see this with overseers and deacons later. Okay, Slightly different situation, same principle. So men on the one hand pray, and when you do it needs to be in holiness. How you pray matters. So now when it gets to women, what's the instruction for them? It's not right at the beginning. We might be tempted to say, oh, so women's instructions is to dress themselves? That doesn't make sense. Keep looking forward. It says in verse 10, they are to dress with what is proper for women who profess godliness. So men, we need to be known as men of prayer. Women, we need to, not we, women need to be known. No jokes on that later. Women need to be known for professing godliness. Professing godliness. This is more than a verbal. This is more than a verbal profession. Just like men with prayer, it matters how you do this. How do you do that? So it says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. There's a description in the verse about what this looks like and what it doesn't look like. So you can look in the verse. I've got it listed here. The good qualities it mentions is modesty, self-control, and good works. Those are the good things that are listed. Here's the things that are listed that are not good. Uh, Braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. And kind of implicitly, what is bad is immodesty. Lack of self-control, lack of good works. Okay? So these descriptions are almost universally understood and professed by women in the church. The big debate here is exactly what does this mean and how do we apply it? Almost all of us have a different understanding of what modesty is. So my background before coming here... I've spent a lot of years in student ministry. A lot of people have a different understanding of what modesty is. And when I get ready to take students on a summer camp, I'm like, look, I tried at the beginning, starting out real simple, look, just dress modestly, okay? And if you're going to err one side or the other, err on the side of modesty rather than revealing. I learned after one year, I cannot leave it at that. I cannot. I have to say, okay, look, this isn't the standard of modesty, but this is the standard for summer camp. You've got to wear shorts this long. You've got to wear shirts with straps this wide. That's just how it was, unfortunately. So this is the problem. How do we define modesty? Scripture doesn't give us those details on that. That's what the big debate is. So first question we might ask is, what is the difference between modest and immodest? The word here for modest, the Greek, can also mean bashfulness chiefly towards men. And it can also mean awe and reverence towards God. So bashfulness towards men is similar to this feeling of needing to hide from a man. And when applied to clothing, it would be through your clothing. 
Wear clothing that displays bashfulness toward men. I'm reminded of my daughter. Sometimes you'll see her coming in and she will just like grab my leg and just like slip right behind it and just poke her head out. How she can hide behind me is beyond me. I mean, you still be able to see her, but she clings and like tries to hide. And the idea is that with our clothing, it should be such a way. Or the other side is that when we wear our clothing that it should be something that is reverencing God. Where you can look to God and say, do you like how I look? Or, do you like what you see? There's some things that maybe we wear to please our spouse, and they like what they see, but we might not feel comfortable asking God about that. If that's the case, that should not be something that's worn in a place where we worship God. I'm not saying there's not a time and place for that, but in every place where the people of God gather, this is how it ought to be done. That's the idea of modesty. If you can look to God without an ounce of shame and say, do you like what you see and not feel shame, you've accomplished the idea. So what about self-control? This word can also be translated and is translated in Scripture one time in the ESV as sober. So the idea is not being excessive, not going over the top, which leads perfectly into this list that we see. Right after self-control, it says, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly attire. So here's what this does not mean. If your hair is braided, you violated the Word of God. That is not what that means. I've heard people make that argument. Like, it says it right here. And this is God's word. If you don't believe it, you don't believe in God's word. Brother, I just, I think you're misinterpreting the passage. He's trying to say, be sober in your dress, not going over the top with how you fix your hair and what you wear with your clothing and your accessories. That's the idea of the passage. That's what God is communicating to us through this word, self-control. The idea is proper proportion. Not going over the top in such a way that your hair or your clothing or your accessories are what people notice about you, but your godliness is. That's what it is. When people think of you or see you, they don't think, oh, her hair is just always, you know, it's I will never have, or man, the way that she accessorizes, it's just, I don't know how women think. I mean, I just, in my mind, that's how it works. I will just never be able, but rather, that lady right there is one of the godliest women you will ever meet. That is the goal. That is the goal. So real practical questions here for women. I gave men two. I've got two for women. Number one. Does your dress, the way that you dress, make you in church, does the way that you dress in church among the people of God make you or parts of your body the star of the show? Number two, do you make God the star of the show by your good works and self control? That's what the passage is teaching. Well, Brother Gary, you didn't, give us a, you didn't give us a list of rules on the modesty. You're right. I'm not going to. The Holy Spirit will convict us all on that. And men, this applies to you too. Men should dress modestly too. I know it's, it doesn't say men here, but I'm pretty sure I can speak confidently and say men, dress modestly. Okay. But here we're talking in the context of women in the church. 
So after talking about conduct, Paul begins to move to function in the church. Okay? We just looked at conduct. Men, when you pray, don't be angry. Don't be quarrelsome. Pray like holy men. Women, when you profess godliness, don't dress with all these extra things out of proportion. Be known for your self-control, your modesty, your your good works. That's all conduct-related. Now we're going to start to look at function in the church. We're going to see the roles of pastor and deacon coming up in the following weeks. So we're not going to go into those yet. But what we're going to see in the rest of this passage is how gender roles affect our function in the church. So look at verse 11. Continues, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It's really important when we are looking, especially at verse 11, that we do not separate verse 11 and verse 12. The original scriptures in the Greek do not have numbers. They don't have them. Okay? So we sometimes stop at the end of a number and we're like, that's the verse. Okay? We should not stop there because verse 11 and verse 12 tie together to each other. The command for a woman to learn quietly with submissiveness is directly related to the functions of teaching and authority. Look at the verse with me. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. Do you see the relationship? Learning versus teaching. Submitting versus authority. What Paul is trying to say here is that the teaching authority role of the church is reserved for men and not women. In our Southern Baptist churches, we call that pastor. That's what we call that, pastor. Okay. This does not mean that a woman cannot teach or speak their mind or be directors of events in a church or help lead the church. When we isolate verse 11, that's the impression we get. Well, what does the Bible say about women? Well, they just need to be quiet and sit back and do what they're told. I've heard a form of that before, many times, unfortunately. That's just unfaithfulness to the Scriptures. That is isolating a single verse and imposing on it your own idea of what that means. The fancy word for this is eisegesis. It's when we isolate a verse and we impose my own interpretation on it. Rather, the opposite, what we should be doing, is called exegesis, and that's when we expose the meaning of a verse by exposing the verses around it. And this is becoming really popular in a lot of popular preaching today. You turn on the TV, you get on a podcast, you listen to a preacher, he'll take one single verse and man deliver a powerful sermon, but then when you back up and you look at all the verses around that that they left out, you realize what he said that verse means isn't really what that verse means. 
The most famous example of this in all Christianity almost is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So then we get two football teams that love Jesus. This football team says, we're claiming God's promises. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. Then you get the other football team. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. And they pray, God give us victory. Guess what? One of those teams is not getting victory. (laughs) One of them is not getting victory. And one of them is walking away saying, well, I thought God's word said. Could it be that we haven't trained our children to properly read the scriptures? So that they know, well, that's not really saying that I can do all things. The list of all things was before that. Whether I'm in need or I have plenty. Whether I'm in want or I have so, so much I'm content. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what it means. So the same danger is here. We don't want to eisegete. We want to exegete. This is where we get the phrase expositional preaching. Some of you may know this. Some of you may not. This is preaching through large chunks of scripture, usually books, but not necessarily, so that we can have the proper context. That's what I'm doing now. We're going through 1 Timothy. On Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of John. Okay? That's what that is. We're trying to expose the scripture. Really important. So, kind of take that little rabbit trail to bring us back to, we can't separate verses 11 and 12. Why is this teaching authority limited to men in the context of the church? We're going to look at this a little bit more when we look at the office of pastor coming up, but we have a little description here. Um, Keep looking and follow along with me um, here in verse 13. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So it's really important for us to see why God tells us to operate this way. This is not a cultural command. Some people have said, well, Paul said that because in that culture women were uneducated. They didn't have the resources that men had because their culture had a low view of women. So he's telling the women, hey, you don't teach in church because these guys are not going to be able to. But in today's times, in modern times, women are much more educated, usually smarter than a lot of men. So they should pastor the church. This is not a cultural command that we can do that with. If we start to do that with Scripture, we're going to just invent our own rules all the time. We can't just say, oh, must be a cultural thing because we think it's different. If that's the case, homosexuality, the ban against that, well, it's just a cultural thing. It was, it was looked down upon in their culture. You see how this can quickly get out of hand. We cannot have that mentality. This is not a cultural command. Look at his reasoning. Why is it that a woman is not to teach and exercise authority in the body of believers? Why is it? Verse 13. For, or because... Adam was formed first, then Eve. His explanation of why this is to be goes all the way back to creation. God desires for us to function in the church according to how we are designed to function. God designed things differently. He designed for bananas to be peeled down before eaten. But then he designed for apples to just go all in. It's a different design. 
He's designed men and women differently. So when we look at this, we see, well, why is it, why is it to be this way? He points back to creation. And he explains, when they were created, Adam was made first, Eve was made second. This is why that man is to be the teaching authority in the church and the chief authority in the household. It both goes back to this. Some have looked at this and said, see, women shouldn't teach or lead because they were made differently. And the, the implication is they're not fit mentally to do that. They're not discerning enough to be able to teach or to lead. And that's not true. It's not their composition in this verse that's in view. It's the creation order. You notice that. Why is it that men, that this role is reserved for men? Verse 13. Because Adam was formed first. Not smarter. Okay? Uh, I'm positive my wife is smarter than I am. Not smarter. First. God designed it that way. Could have been flipped. It wasn't. He points back to that. It's the creation order. Adam first, Eve second. And I think it's because God designed it so that later we would have this model for us in our families and in our churches. Adam leads the family. Adam shepherds the church under the headship of Jesus. Okay, Garrett, but what about where it says that woman was deceived? Isn't that talking about how woman was made? This isn't saying that God designed women to be gullible. I think it's giving us an example. Hey, by the way, here's what happens whenever we take God's order and just say, nah. Here's what happens. Look back at creation. Woman was deceived. We all know, I think it's past now, there was a time when there was a joke. It's like, well, it's a woman's fault we sin. <laughs> well, I think we all know now we look at that situation in Genesis and we're like, yeah, but bro, the man was right there and just let it happen. When we violate God's order, these kind of things are going to happen this way. It isn't that women are less capable. It's that God gave men and women different functions. Men and women are equal in value, but are intended to function differently. And that's okay. And our culture needs to hear this. Today's culture tries to blur the line between man and woman. They say it's not okay for us to be different. I should be able to do whatever I want. And if I want to function as a man, though biologically I am not, I should be allowed to do that. And if you stop that, that is abuse against me. That's what our culture teaches. Not only is it okay for men and women to be different, God designed us that way. We should embrace that. Okay, Garrett, so what about teaching Sunday school, Bible studies, etc.? So right here, if you look at verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. I'm really grateful for that inclusion because here's what it tells us. There are cases when a woman can and should teach. In the church body, the teaching authority of the church is exercised by the pastor, which is a male. But women 
can and should still teach in the church. God, please send us godly women to teach in the church. We need it. When? When it's not fulfilling the function of pastor. That's when. That's when it's appropriate. When it's not fulfilling the function of a pastor. Any function that the pastor is responsible for should not be fulfilled by a woman. That's what the verse is saying. This would be preaching authoritatively from God's Word on a Sunday morning or shepherding and directing the functions of the church. Here's appropriate avenues that this might include. You're like, well, what do you mean? Teaching children, teaching other women, orchestrating and coordinating events, serving on committees, facilitating Bible study. Women and men both need to be involved in all the ministries of the church. This has nothing to do with ability or value. It's just God's purposes for us as He has decided. So as we kind of wrap this up, we go to 15. It says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul doesn't end on a negative note here. He says, yes, woman became a transgressor, but that's not the end. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a hard verse that a lot of godly men disagree on. A lot of godly men disagree on this. So disagreement here is okay within reason. But here's what it does not mean, we can say for sure. It does not mean... Oh, see, women are saved by having children. I've heard this before. The only thing women are good for is having babies. Brothers, do not let something like that come out of your mouth. Especially with me nearby. It's not what this is saying. No, women are saved by faith in Christ who died for their sin just like we are. Praise God. That is not what it's saying. So the real question here is what is meant by the phrase will be saved through childbearing? What does that mean? If you'd like to turn to this verse and look, you can. Otherwise, you can just listen to me read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. And the words are important here, which is why I'm encouraging you to look at it yourself if you'd like to. 1 Corinthians 3.15 If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So this is talking about building the foundation of faith. And you have this person that is not living this life of Christ. They are building their foundation with straw. And it says that on the day, it will be disclosed, it will be made manifest how we built. And there's going to be some who built with the right materials, and their faith was solid. And they're going to hear from their master, well done, good and faithful servant. There's some who did not build on their faith well. And it's going to be burned up, but you're still going to be saved. And it's like you'll be saved as through fire. So what this verse is saying is you're not saved through fire. You're not saved by fire. It's the exact same words. 
will be saved as through fire. So now if you look in 1 Timothy, I think that it's the same thing here. We're tempted to interpret through as by. I don't think that's accurate. It's the exact same thing. She will be saved through childbearing. How does that fit our current verse here? If you think back to creation, we've been talking about it in the context. Childbearing was affected by the curse of the fall. Remember what God said to women. Your pain shall be increased in childbearing. Now in pain shall you bring forth from your womb. So if we bring this interpretation over, it would sound like this. Though women are still experiencing the curse of their transgression, you will be saved by Jesus in the midst of it. Same thing with the fire. Though you are surrounded by this fiery revealing of your faith, you will be saved by Jesus. And it's the same thing here. Look at the rest of the verse. I think it supports this. She will be saved in the midst of childbearing, through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. So the implication is, if she does not have faith, she will not be saved. It's just like men. We are saved through our faith in Christ. Women will be saved by Jesus if they have faith and the fruit of their salvation comes. Love, holiness, self-control. And this is where it comes full circle. The holiness and self-control that should characterize women who profess godliness is the fruit of their faith in Jesus. Likewise, men, the prayerfulness and the peaceableness of our praying is the fruit of our faith in Jesus. Because of the fall, we need to be careful to operate in the way that God has designed. That's the whole point of this passage. God's designed us to operate a certain way. We better operate that way. With our eyes on Christ saying, I am following you and I am submitting to your authority even if I don't always understand. That's what this is saying. This is going to protect us from further effects of the fall into sin. But no matter what those effects are or how well we follow this divine plan for our church, the good news is we will be saved through our suffering by faith in Jesus leading us to love, holiness, and self-control. So let's cast our eyes on Jesus. Let's listen to Jesus and say, God, we want to function as a church how you've designed us to function. Men, let's be known for prayer and holiness not anger. Women, let's profess godliness. Let our beauty and good works shine forth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as hard as it is sometimes to wrestle with these issues, especially in the midst of a culture that is constantly looking for something to attack, an ideology to destroy, especially in our faith, we thank you that you give us clarity in your word. We thank you that you've made us differently. We thank you that you haven't made us less valuable than one another. We thank you that you've designed us to fulfill the functions that you instruct us to fulfill. We thank you that you've saved us from our sin. And right now, Father, we just come to you in confession. 
Father, we are not always prayerful or holy or engaging in good works. Father, but we want to function in the church as the people of God, as a holy people, dependent upon you to save us. Father, forgive us when we stray from you or your commands. Make us a faithful people and a holy people who are dependent upon you above all things. We thank you for dying in our place to save us from our sin. Ask you to send us out into the world to all people without distinction. That they might be saved through Jesus. We love you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.